And so we'd love to have you come and be a part of our family. We're going to be looking, as I said a moment ago, at John chapter 12. If you had the opportunity to watch the close of the Super Bowl, you know that the Seahawks were so close, but so far away from winning. They should have won. They could have won, but they didn't. I think about sometimes people who, spiritually speaking, are so close to living for Jesus, but so far away. In John chapter 12, we have a picture of some people who were so close to following Jesus, but so far away. And so with that in mind, I want you to look with me at our lesson text, and I want to begin by talking about the signs of the Savior. In John 12, verse 37, John tells us that Jesus had done many signs before them. As you think about the signs or miracles that the Apostle John is talking about here, you have to understand that in this gospel account, there is a record of seven very specific signs or miracles performed by Jesus. Each and every sign authenticated his deity. In other words, the miracles that Jesus performed validated his claims that he was indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. In John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus would say, The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. You remember in John chapter 20, in verse 30 and 31, John said, Many of the signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The signs or the miracles that are recorded by John demonstrate the power that Jesus possessed as the Son of God. For example, in chapter 2, when Jesus turned water into wine, the very first miracle or sign in his ministry. It was a demonstration of his power over matter. The same could be said in chapter 6 when he took five barley loaves and two small fish and fed 5,000 people. There's a demonstration of the power of Jesus over distance in John chapter 4 when he healed a nobleman's son. And then there is the demonstration of power over illness, disease, or sickness as evidenced in chapter 4. The healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the man who was paralyzed in chapter 5, the restoration or the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. All of these lend evidence to the fact that Jesus was 
the Son of God. In chapter 6, we have a record of Jesus walking on water, demonstrating his power over nature. And then in chapter 11, you have the raising of Lazarus from the dead, demonstrating his divine power over death itself. So when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, the evidence was in. The evidence was before the people, demonstrated not just by his miracles, but also his great message. So we think about the signs of Jesus and the purpose behind these signs or miracles. But there's a second thing I want you to see, and that is the spurning of the Savior. In other words, these people rejected him. Listen now to what John the Apostle records concerning the signs or miracles that Jesus did and the reaction of the people of that day. Look at verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Is that not incredulous to you? That here is the Son of God, and he has performed miracle after miracle after miracle. I mean, they have seen firsthand the divine Son of God at work, and yet they didn't believe in him. And then I think about the message of Jesus. You remember in John chapter 6 when Jesus identified himself as the bread of life? And the Bible says that many of his disciples responded by saying, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And John tells us, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus then asked the question, will you also go away? Simon Peter spoke up and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. So here's the Son of God. He has a divine message. He is backing that message up with many, many miracles. And yet, John said, they did not believe in him. And so he quotes Isaiah the prophet. And really, in chapter 12, there are two different quotations. The first taken from Isaiah 53, which, as you well know, prophesied of the suffering servant, that is Jesus, the Messiah. The second taken from chapter 6, when Isaiah had the opportunity to see the second member of the Godhead lifted up, high and lifted up, as he would say. I want you to think with me, first of all, about Israel's calloused rejection of Jesus. Note again verse 37. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Note also what is said in verse 39. Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their heart, and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. What's the danger of delaying 
the decision to become a follower of Jesus. In context, it is the danger of a hard heart. I mean, you think about it for a minute. Here were people that had the opportunity to stand in the presence of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. They could have followed him from town to town. They could see the great works. They had the opportunity to step back and to listen to his authoritative words. They could take what they saw, what they heard, and then they could draw some conclusions. And yet they didn't believe in him. As a result of that, what happened? Isaiah said, speaking of these people, just like the people of his day, they became hardened or calloused to his word. You can be so close to following Jesus, but so far away. Because every time you say no to the gospel of Christ, every time you reject the overtures of the Son of God, what you're doing is turning a deaf ear to the one who can save you and to the word that can cleanse you. You remember in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle Paul talked about how there would be some who would have their conscience seared or branded with a hot iron. And the idea is that conscience no longer has, a, has any feeling. And then in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer encourages the people of that day to take heed. He said, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He said, but exhort one another day by day so long as it's today, lest you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The longer you live in sin, the more difficult it becomes to extricate yourself from that lifestyle. There are people that are beyond hope. And the reason is because they become so set in their ways, they're just not open to change. So we think about, first of all, Israel's calloused rejection of Jesus. And then note in the second place, Israel's cowardly rejection of Jesus. Pick up with me, if you would, in verse 42. And note what John says about the leaders of that day. Nevertheless, even among some translations might say chief rulers... Many believed, in him, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Well, why was that? Lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So what's the problem here? You've got people, religious people. Some would say that the rulers here were a part of the Sanhedrin council comprised of both Sadducees and Pharisees, but nonetheless, they were religious people, leaders among the people. Did they believe in Jesus? Yes, they did. 
Did they understand the claims that were made by Jesus? I think they did. But because of external influence, religiously speaking, they would not confess Jesus. In other words, they wouldn't acknowledge him. They wouldn't make the decision to follow him because they were more concerned about their status as Jews. So what's the implication there? Sometimes if we're not careful, we can bow to the pressures around us. In other words, we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We believe every syllable of every word of this book that we call Scripture. We believe it. If somebody asked us, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Our answer would be absolutely. Do you believe you have to follow the Lord Jesus Christ to go to heaven? Again, the answer would be absolutely. Do you believe you need to obey the gospel to become a child of God? Again, the answer would be yes. Are you willing to do that? No. Well, why? Sometimes it's because of external influences. These people love the praise of men more than the praise of God. They were religious people influenced by religious people. Sometimes we allow relationships that we have within our own family to control and dictate whether or not we become a child of God. You remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14? Jesus understood the power of human relationships and how sometimes we allow human relationships to become a roadblock to becoming one of his disciples. He said, if any man come to me and hate not or love less, father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he said, he cannot be my disciple. Sometimes our alliance is so strong to our mama and daddy that we just will not turn loose and say, you know what, I'm going to do what the Bible says regardless. I have known people, I have known of people that have obeyed the gospel and in so doing have become ostracized by their family. Would that be difficult? Yes, it would. But again, it is a desire to follow Jesus, to put him first. When you think about, you think about the people of Jesus' day, the, Isra the Israelite people, the Jews. John had said in chapter 1 that Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. Jesus came to the Jewish people, and yet they rejected him. Sometimes we allow family relationships, specifically our parents, maybe grandparents, brother, sister, whatever, to stand in our way of following Jesus. And then I think about our peers. It might be the case that we want to become a child of God, but the crowd we run with is not a godly crowd. We're running with the wrong kind of people and they have such a strong influence upon us that we don't yield to the overtures of the gospel. You know, Paul said, be not deceived. Evil companionship corrupts good morals. If you run with the devil's crowd, what's going to happen? 
You're going to become one of the devil's people. There are some folks that will not obey the gospel. They won't follow Jesus because of the pressure that is exerted on them by their friends. I think about the words of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10, when he said, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. You have to make a decision. Where is your loyalty going to lie? And then there is a third thing that I think sometimes gets in our way of following Jesus, and that is the pleasures. As Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 13, the cares of the world. The world has such a strong appeal. John identified the world in 1 John chapter 2 as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The devil knows how to entice, to bait people, doesn't he? He does a great job of it. Now here's something to think about. Can you have fun in the world? Yes, you can. Is living in the world, is it satisfying to some extent? Yes, it is. Well, how do you know that? Because I've been there. I have been in the world. And I understand the pleasures that go with the world. Did I have fun? Yes, I did. But I didn't have any peace. Went to bed every night with guilt. I didn't have any hope. Why is that? Because my life was not grounded in God. My life was not centered on God. You can't have Peace, and I'm talking about the peace that passes all understanding in the world. You might have temporary peace. You might have superficial satisfaction, but you can't have the peace that passes all understanding in the world in which we live. It's not there. The Bible talks about Moses who forsook the treasures in Egypt and the pleasures of sin to associate with the people of God. Sometimes we get so caught up in the world. And let me tell you what, the world can get a strong grip on you. And it is so hard to let go. What you need to ask yourself is this. Where do you want to spend eternity? You see, the bottom line is, when I was in the world, I knew. I don't have to have anybody tell me, I knew. I was lost. So if you're in the world, you need to get out of the world. There's a fourth thing that I would cite, and that is the pocketbook. Finances, money. You remember what, you remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6? He said, those who are minded to be rich fall into a temptation and snare and many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. He said, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which some men, having reached after, have pierced themselves through with many sorrows and been led astray from the faith. The love of money. In Matthew 13, Jesus talked about the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Sometimes the dollar comes between us and our devotion to God, doesn't it? That's what Paul said. That's what Jesus said. In other words, we can get so caught up and what the Bible identifies as greed. That's what controls us. It's not serving God, not living for God. It's about getting more. 
Here's what Jesus said in Luke 12, 15. Be not deceived. He said, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, how different is that from the world in which we live? The world says you're something if you have a large bank account. The world says you're something if you have a lot of land. The world says you're something if you have a lot of power. Jesus asked, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall he give in exchange for his soul? So the people that we're talking about here, first you have a calloused rejection and then a cowardly rejection. Sometimes we're afraid, fearful of simply doing what is right. There's a third thing I want you to see in our text, and that is the summation of the Savior. Note, if you would, some of the concluding statements that Jesus makes on this occasion. First of all, there is the statement that he makes in the latter part of chapter 12, when he said, I have come a light into the world. Jesus came as light, didn't he? To dispel the spiritual darkness shrouding the world. In chapter 8, verse 12, he would say, I am the light of the world. One of the seven I am statements in the gospel according to John. First, there is the revelation of Jesus. What about the revelation of Jesus? You ever thought about why did Jesus come to earth? He tells us. In this chapter, Jesus articulates first the plan and secondly the purpose. Go back if you would and listen to what Jesus says in verse 27 of chapter 12. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, because God in heaven devised a plan to redeem the human family before the foundation of the world. Jesus is identified in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus came to bear witness of the Father. He was the exact representation of the Father. He would say in John chapter 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Listen to what he says in verse 44. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now let me just pause here. When Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, the world was already under judgment. The world was already under condemnation. Jesus didn't come to condemn. The world was already condemned. He came to save. You remember John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's exactly what he's saying here. God had a divine plan. That plan was that the human family would be redeemed through Jesus. 
God had a divine purpose for the coming of Jesus. What was that purpose? To be lifted up so that all people might be drawn to him, saved by his blood. So, there's first of all the revelation of Jesus, and then secondly, there is a reminder from Jesus. Now, you've got to think about the people who are present. And you've got to think about the people that have rejected the Son of God. They have dismissed his overtures. They've seen what he's done. They've heard what he's had to say, but they have dismissed him. So with that in mind, listen now to what Jesus says in verse 48. He who rejects me. Who are they rejecting? The divine Son of God. Look at verse 49 very quickly. Jesus said, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Everything Jesus did was in absolute harmony with God the Father. They worked in concert or tandem with one another. Now listen to what Jesus says. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Two things here. First, there is the word who will judge. Who is the word that will judge? That's Jesus. In John chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus said that the Father has given him authority to judge the world. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. In Romans chapter 14, he would say, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us must give an account of himself to God, to Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, will one day come and be seated upon the throne of his glory, as he outlines in Matthew chapter 25. And then... Not only does Jesus talk about the word who will judge, verse 47, he, he who rejects me, that's Jesus. What about the word that will judge us? What word are we talking about here? We're talking about Scripture, the words of Jesus. Listen to what he says. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. Now listen. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. We're not going to be judged on the basis of our opinions. It's not going to be some type of majority vote. It's not going to be on the basis of what somebody has written or somebody has said. It's going to be on the basis of what this book says. You remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2 verse 2? That the judgment of God is according to truth? The question was asked in John chapter 18, what is truth? Listen to what Jesus said in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. 
how am I going to be judged? I'm going to be judged by what the Bible has to say. So I want to ask you a question. How well do you know the scriptures? How well do you know this book that we call the Bible? You remember in Revelation chapter 20, when John said, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open, another book was open, which is the book of life. The books that were opened, plural there, scriptures, Old and New Testament. We're going to be judged on the basis of truth. What that tells me is I better understand this book. And secondly, my life needs to be in harmony with this book. If my life is not in harmony with this book, what does that mean? It means I'm in trouble on that last day. The truth of God is the only thing that has the ability to set you free from sin. In other words, when you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, you come in contact with all the blessings and favors of Almighty God. What is it that outlines the blessings of God and how to obtain those blessings? This book that we call Scripture. Listen again to what Jesus said. He who rejects me does not receive my words, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. The last day is the day of judgment. You know, we talk about the role of the preacher. And I understand the awesome responsibility that rests on those of us who preach because we're going to be judged according to what we teach based on James chapter 3. But I want you to understand something. I'm just the messenger. My job is to deliver the message. As Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. When I preach and teach, when I make a presentation of God's word, you need to understand it's not my word, it's God's word. And sometimes I think we forget that every time we extend the invitation, every time we encourage people to obey the gospel or maybe to rededicate their lives to Christ. We need to understand, we either say yes, not, not, you're not saying yes to me. You're, you're not saying no to me, Mike Hickson. You're saying yes to the Lord or no to the Lord. I wonder how many people on the day of judgment wonder how many folks will stand before the Lord and they will have been so close but so far away from becoming a follower of Jesus. It's not about what I might do, what I think I'm going to do. It's about what I do. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you as strongly as I know how, obey the gospel today. Be buried with Christ in baptism. Why? So that your sins might be washed away, Acts 2.38. So that God will add you to the church, Acts 2.47. Somebody asked the question, why do I need to be a member of the church? Because the Bible says that Jesus is the Savior of the body. 
Ephesians 5.23. Maybe you're here today and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ. And you need to get your life back in harmony with the will of God. Wouldn't it be awful to stand before God one day as an unfaithful child of God? As somebody who went back into the world? To stand before the Son of God and to think, I was so close, but now I'm so far away. What about you today? What will you say to Jesus as we stand and sing?